Michael's Fowell, a gospel-centered community for Fowell, Teddington, and beyond. Our passion is to see every life following Jesus. For more information, visit our website, stmichaelsfowell.co.uk. If you grab your Bibles, um, and shortly, Toby's going to come up and teach us from the Bible. Uh, before then, uh, we're going to have the Bible read to us, and Joe's going to read from us. We're in Matthew chapter 5. Which is on page 970. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Love for enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Thanks so much, Jay. Um, good evening, everyone. Great to see you again. Um, the last few weeks we have been thinking about the love of God uh, in these evening services and first, a couple of weeks ago, we asked the question um, of whether the God who made us and made everything loves us. Um, it's not a given that he would, um, so we were asking that question. The God who made everything, who made you and me, does he also love us? And we were thinking about how through the cross, God has answered us infinite and undeniable yes. Second, we ask whether we can really trust that love, uh, whether we can trust enough to allow ourselves to step out into it um, and to live lives that are resting on it and based on it. And his answer through the cross, again, was that this love is completely unconditional. Yes, you can trust it. Tonight, we are thinking about what comes next. What happens in a person's life when they step out into the reality of the love of God for them? When the love of God is allowed to take up residence in the center of someone's being and bathe everything in its light? Or in other words, what happens when the love of God is allowed to find someone's heart and become the most important thing about them? Become place where they root their identity. I am very much, um, as I've said already, very much someone, uh, speaking as someone who um, struggles with this, who has not got this nailed down. Um, I find it really easy to doubt the love of God for me. Um, and I long to know more of his love and to define myself more by his love. And for all of us, this is not something that we are going to get like all at once. Um, it might be that God gives us moments where we do just suddenly get it. But generally, this is something that we are slowly stepping into um, across our, our Christian lives. But it is something absolutely worth struggling towards. After this service, um, I'm going to be sort of hovering around here. And um, just if, if uh, you have any questions at the back of any of these three talks, uh, or anything you'd like to talk about further, or anything you'd like to 
pray about, um, then feel free to come and call on me. And I would just love to talk more about this sort of thing. Um, should we pray before we get into it tonight? I just want to pray these words from Ephesians 3 for us. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure, all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him, to you, Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Yesterday, I left my house fairly early in the morning to come here to write this talk. And as I left, it, the sun was shining, mostly. A um, few clouds around, but it, it was, looked pretty nice. I didn't even bother, didn't even think about taking an umbrella. Um, as I walked a bit further, clouds came in, got a bit darker, a couple of spots of rain. That's all right, it's fine. I'm going to just keep going. Then it started to rain a little bit more consistently and I was getting a bit wet but I thought this is still pretty much okay but I might just just sort of take shelter for a little bit and uh, there were some trees and I went and just stood under some trees and uh, for a couple of minutes just watched the rain come down um, thinking I'm sure this is going to pass in a second and sure enough it did um, see pretty clearly the clouds just starting to roll back uh, the rain eased off and I thought okay this is this is fine I'm gone keep going so I stepped out and made it about sort of 30 paces or so and the heavens just opened and I don't know if you were in that or watching that yesterday morning but um, it was within seconds as if I had jumped into a river I was completely completely drenched uh, all the way through and um, uh, the trees were too far away to go back and uh, I was I just had to press on and I, I passed another man standing under some other trees just grinning at me um, and he just said given up and I said yeah because I had you're, I was at that point where there was nothing more to it you just have to embrace it and um, it was only when I got when I was approaching church um, that I realized hang on I can't I can't just spend an entire day in soaking wet clothes uh, I'm gonna have to go home and um, so I did and I haven't written a talk and that no um, no, I, I did go home to get changed, but then I came back. And, um, but as I passed church, uh, the, the clouds really did roll back, and the sun just broke through. And um, yeah, God has a sense of humor as well. Um, but it was a lovely walk home. Uh, there was a temptation in that moment to think, um, why does a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? But that would be silly, firstly, because I'm not a good person. And secondly, because it was not a bad thing. And we're going to find out why in our passage uh, right now. Let's have a look. That passage that was read, Matthew 5, 43 to 48. This is part of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. Um, and in this bit of it, he's responding to 
wrong understandings of the Old Testament and what the Old Testament taught. And he's teaching about a different way of being in the world, about what his kingdom is like and how people who belong to his coming kingdom should live. And this section here, he says that people have heard that they should love their neighbors and hate their enemies, which isn't what the Old Testament teaches, but that's what people had heard at that point. Love your neighbors, hate your enemies. Jesus is saying, instead, you are to hate no one, and you are to love everyone, neighbors and enemies. We're going to get on to what this passage has to say about us and how we're to live in a minute. Um, But first, let's just ask the question, what does it say about God? What does this passage tell us about God and what he is like? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Love your enemies. Why should we love our enemies? That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Or in other words, that you may be acting like your father, acting as the children that you are. Your father, who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It is amazing when you think about it, that the sun rises and shines on absolutely everyone. It's a completely shared experience. Every single person, um, indiscriminately. And the rain is exactly the same. the rain comes down on all people, regardless of what they've done. It's not that good people um, have some sort of invisible umbrella above them, preventing the rain from hitting them. Um, the, the rain, the sun, shine and, and fall down on all people, um, regardless of what they've done. And these are, these are good things, um, even if sometimes when you're caught in the rain, it's not the most fun. Um, they are good things. They, they bring life. We, we need them. Uh, in order to survive, in order to thrive. But Jesus is saying here, they, they are not just things that are uh, mechanical and automatic. Um, they are given. They are things that are given. God gives them constantly, day after day, so constantly that we don't even think about it. And what this passage is saying is that God gives them not dispassionately um, and unthinkingly, but he gives out of a desire to bless. God gives these things every day to all out of love. To good people, to bad people, to people who worship him, to people who hate him. Every day, God gives the sun, God gives rain, constantly. And this is his nature, Jesus is saying. This is what God is like. Sun rising, the rain falling, and a million and more other things that we completely take for granted every day are signs that God loves, still loves this messed up fallen world and you and me. And what we've been saying over the last couple of weeks is that the the ultimate sign of this same love, this same indiscriminate, unconditional love is the cross. The cross that stands above this world, 
the cross that stands at the center of human history, more constant and everlasting than even the sun or the rain, declaring that God who made this world and everyone in it, and you and me, still looks on this world and everyone in it, and you and me, in our sin and our brokenness, with heart-wrenching love. At the cross, God gave what was most precious to him. He gave his own son. At the cross, God, the son, Jesus, gave himself to be broken by the world, by the people that he loved, to take the sin and the guilt of the world on himself and pay the price and declare, it is finished. I love you still. I forgive you. Come to me and find life again. This is who God is for the world. This is who God is for you and me. Who do you believe God is, really, most deeply? Who do you think God is, really? Let the cross define your view of God and his heart towards this world and every person in it. Let the cross shine into your heart and dispel the clouds of wrong belief about who God is that can so easily creep in. And then believe, believe that if you have received that all God is offering simply by trusting in Jesus, then you are utterly safe in this love. You are utterly safe. Um, there's a quote from a guy called uh, Richard Lovelace. Um, it's going to appear. Um, he said that Christians say they are saved by grace, but, and the quote, uh, day to day, they draw their assurance of their acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or relative infrequency of their conscious, willful disobedience. These are the things that we tend to draw our assurance from. And that, that definitely describes me to a T. This is, this is easily what I default to, drawing my assurance of God's love for me from either what I think the sincerity of my faith is like or my past experience of conversion or God or, or my, how well I'm doing or um, how recently I sinned and how aware I was that I was sinning. And I just fall into a place of complete uncertainty and assuming really that God probably doesn't really love me. This is so easily what we default to. But we don't need to rely on any of these things. For God to love us or to keep on loving us. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We have been justified by faith. Um, and what that means is, justified, is, is the moment we trusted in Jesus, God said, you are righteous no matter what you do now. No matter what you do, you are righteous. He declared us perfect. God said, you are perfect in my sight, independent of your actions, because it's not based on your actions anymore. It's based on what Jesus has done for you. Totally removed it from the realm of your actions and what you do. And so we have peace with God and we stand in his grace. 
standing in God's grace is a phrase that we might have heard before and just brushed over, but but it is it's everything. This this is so cool. Um, it's in contrast to uh, standing under God's law, um, God's uh, Old Testament law. In this country, right? If we if we break the law of the United Kingdom, um, and we do something, well, yeah, if we do something that breaks that law, then the law of our country responds with the punishment that the law strives. It says punishment if it's the crime. We're under the law. If in this country we break the law, you you receive the punishment. It's the crime. Anyone heard of school streets? No? Yeah, Joe has. I think, I'm not commenting on whether that's a good or a bad idea, um, but it's brutal in terms of how, how it's working out. Um, basically, we got a letter through the post the other day saying that we owed 65 pounds to certain council. Um, and all we, all we had done is at the wrong, like half an hour during the day, we turned into a street that had a school on it. And we hadn't even gone down the street. We parked right like at the beginning of that street. And um, because we hadn't seen the signs that, that said, don't even, don't even drive down this street. Not just don't park here, don't drive down the street. It feels very unfair. I feel like if you could get fined that much, but just like turning in a road at the wrong half an hour, there should be flashing neon signs, at least. Um, anyway, doesn't matter. Um, that's what the law says. The law says that we, we, uh, we did the wrong thing. Um, signs are there. And uh, we, we break the law, we, we deserve the fine. And so we've, we've got to pay it. And that's the situation that, that we were in. That's the kind of set. That's how things used to work. Um, regarding God's law before Jesus. We break it, stand condemned and facing punishment. But if you're under grace, if you're standing in grace, then whenever you break God's law, which we do all the time because we're imperfect, he doesn't respond with a fine or worse. He responds by saying, it's okay. I've already paid it. Nothing has changed. I love you. He responds with undeserved kindness and love. Totally different paradigm. And, and that's true every single time. Every single time. There's no sin we can commit that would change. Romans 5, uh, towards the end of that chapter, says that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And that, again, is the nature of God. Where our sin increases, his grace bounds to match it and to feed it. Our sins are like um, matches, lit matches that are thrown into um, Niagara Falls waterfall. Um, no matter how many you throw in, his grace is more. And that's the situation that we are in with God. That's how our relationship with him works now, because of the cross. John Calvin, the reformer, um, puts it like this. Uh, he's talking about Paul, the Apostle Paul's writing in the New Testament. And uh, he said this about, about Paul's writing. It is as if he said, even though they do not yet clearly feel, he's talking about Christians, even though they do not yet clearly feel that sin has been destroyed or that righteousness dwells in them, there is still no reason to be afraid and cast down in mind as if God were continually offended by the remnant of sin. 
seeing that they have been emancipated from the law by grace, so that their works are not to be measured by its rules. Emancipated just means to be set free. Uh, What he's saying is that Christians have been set free from the entire reality of the law, that whole way of being, so that their actions aren't measured by its rules anymore, and so that we, we therefore don't need to be afraid or cast down in mind. We don't need to be afraid anymore that God is angry when we sin. Which all sounds too good to be true, um, but that's kind of the whole point. It, it does sound too good to be true, but it is true, and that is the gospel. So, what happens when someone believes this and slowly, slowly, bit by bit, is letting it sink in and letting it actually start to really take root in their hearts and shape who they are? What happens in a, in a person's life? Well, there are obviously countless things, and it's, it's really total transformation of someone's heart. Um, but we'll just, we'll just touch on a few. Firstly, they can know peace and joy. Peace and joy. An end to striving, an end to searching. In our hearts, it can, it can often feel like we are spiritually lost in a desert, uh, trying to find what we need, not sure where to look. Thirsty. When we find this love of God, it is like we have found a city in the desert, filled with water, filled with life, the city that we were made for. But in that desert, sandstorms often come. And as Christians, we often wander and get lost. But each time, we are learning slowly how to find our way back to that city. And each time, we get slightly, we get there slightly faster again. And when we're there, when we are consciously living in the city that, that is now our true home, when we, when we lose sight of it, it doesn't mean that it's not our home or where we belong anymore. But when we're consciously there, living in that city that is our home, we have found all our hearts need. And there is so much there to explore and to enjoy. The second thing that really internalizing this gospel um, means uh, is honesty. Honesty with God. The Psalms are full of very honest prayers. Uh, They are brutal at points. Um, Psalm 13 says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? That's that's real honesty with God. And these are the kind of prayers that you can only pray if you're confident that God isn't going to leave if you say something wrong or if you say something negative to him. And that's where the psalm ends in the next, in the, at the end of Psalm 13. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. It's expressing that confidence. The psalmist is confident that God isn't going anywhere. He's confident that God loves him with an unfailing love. And that frees him to be brutally honest with God about his present experience and to voice his question say, God, where are you? The God of the Bible doesn't want emotionally repressed, relationally stifled interactions with us. 
He wants to rest. You see that again and again through the Bible. Being confident that you are unconditionally loved by him enables you to be your real self with him, like a child with their parents, to bring everything that's on your heart to God. And that's when real relationships then flourish. Thirdly, it means an end to playing the comparison game. So many of us, I think pretty much all of us, um, have a a little computer uh, inside, whirring around all the time, running a comparison program during every interaction with others, crunching the numbers, spitting out results, telling us how we match up to other people. And based on those results, we, we either feel good or feel bad. And we're constant running all the time. We're going up and down in relation to those results. Having our deep need for love, which we have, satisfied my God, and placing our identity there, placing our weight there, not on what other people think, that means that we don't have to look for it in other people and what they think of us. It means we can turn off that little computer. We can stop that program running. We can relax. And then once we've done that, that means we can start treating people as people, not as competitors, not as a means to an end. And we can start engaging with the things we're doing for their own sake, instead of as a way to try and get ahead of others or try and create an image or create an identity for ourselves. We can engage with them for what they are. Fourthly, it means joyful obedience. Joyful obedience. If you are not, uh, if you're not confident that the person you're meant to be obeying loves you, then you're not going to want to obey them. You might still obey them, but you're not going to do it wholeheartedly. If you think that they will only, ex- only accept you if you obey them up to a certain standard, then you're going to get tired and exhausted and not want to serve them anymore. You're going to think this just isn't worth it. It's too hard. And if you think that you might already, at some point in the past, have gone too far, you might already have got it wrong, too, too badly wrong, messed up too badly to be forgiven, then you're going to despair. And you're going to think it doesn't matter anyway. And from that point, it's the easiest thing in the world to give in to sin when temptation comes knocking. Because you just think there's no point in resisting anyway. I've already blown it. But if you know, if you know that God loves you and that you haven't got it too wrong and that you can't get it too wrong, then suddenly you're, you're going to want to obey him. It totally transforms everything. Uh, John Calvin, one more time. Um, He said, But if freed from this severe requirement of the law, or rather freed from the entire rigor of the law, I don't quite know what rigor means there, but it means freed from the entirety of the law, they hear themselves called with fatherly gentleness by God. They will cheerfully and with great eagerness answer and follow his leading. God is calling you with fatherly gentleness. Where is he leading us? What does it mean to obey God? What does it mean to follow this God? Well, what would we expect following a God of unconditional love to look like? 
course, it means a life of love. What does Jesus say the two greatest commandments are? Can anyone remember? What does Jesus say are the two greatest commandments? Anyone want to shout out? Love God, love your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, love God with, with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says in John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And then here, in Matthew 5, our passage for tonight, he says, You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute that you may be children of your Father in heaven. What does Jesus not want us to do here? What does he not want us to do? Only love those who are good, only love those who are like us. That is very easy to love people who are good to us and to love people who are like us. That, that comes very naturally. Um, and often what we call love probably isn't necessarily actually love. Um, we're just acting in a way towards them that ultimately we know will benefit us. Um, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? That's what Jesus doesn't want us to do. What, what does he want us to do here? Love all. Indiscriminately. Every single person. Even our enemies. Even those utterly unlike us. Even those who disagree with what we believe. Even those who live lifestyles that we disagree with. Even those who hurt us. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And along with them, our friends, our neighbours, our colleagues, teammates, our brothers, our sisters, schoolmates, our mothers, our fathers, our husbands, wives, children. Love them. Pray for them. Seek their good. Seek to bless them in every possible way, no matter what the cost. Do this practically and do it spiritually. Sharing our time, our energy, our resources and the good news of this gospel. And as we do that, According to verse 45, Jesus is calling us to be like our Father in heaven, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Children look like their parents. Um, we know that. And, and children are like their parents in all kinds of other ways, um, not, just, uh, not just physically. Um, I hear our daughter, Rosie, uh, saying things that my wife, Hannah, says all the time, and even in the same sort of tone of voice. Um, which is crazy. And Jesus is, is saying, be like that, do that. Um, display the family likeness. Love like your father does, indiscriminately, to the extent that you are willing to lay down your life for them, just like God has done. But, and this is really important, before we're able to do this, we have first received the love of our father. Where else can we possibly find resources to love like that? 
We can't do that. We don't have that in ourselves to actually live a life of love like that. We've got to receive it. It's like a, a fountain um, with different levels. Water poured in at the top, which fills up one bit and flows down to the next level, fills up that basin, overflows down, fills up another one, overflows down and, and on and on. That's the way that it has to work. It's the only way that it can work. We have to draw on a love that comes to us from outside. The love of God has to fill up our hearts and then be shared through us with others. 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. That is God's will. That's what God wants. That his love shines on us, transforms us, and brings us to life, and then shines through us to others. Which means that as we seek to live this life, sharing God's love, we have to keep, keep on coming back to this fountain, this everlasting fountain of God's love, and be loved by him, and then love. Be loved and love. We can't skip over this stage. Often I think, even out of a, a desire to be other person-centered um, and not to think about ourselves, we can, we can skip over this as if, as if it's wrong, as if it would be thinking about ourselves too much. Um, but that's not the case. This is something that we're allowed to do. Um, God wants us to know that he loves us and he wants us to come to him as individuals and receive that and be blessed and be filled up by that love. But then he says, don't stop there. Then, then go share this. God's desire is for his love to be shared. He wants us to be radically other person-centered. And only his love can fuel that. So who is the God that you believe in? We find it incredibly easy to internalize a God of judgment. That's who we find it very easy to believe. That's who the world assumes the God of the Bible is, just a God of judgment. But the living God of the Bible is a God of grace. He is going to judge the world one day. He must, he has to, if all things are going to be made well again. And those who have not received his offer of love and forgiveness and rescue and who haven't been covered by the righteousness of Christ will still have to face punishment for what they've done. But God's response to the sin of every person has first been and is grace, cross, an event right in the middle of human history saying to us and every person who has ever lived, I, the God of all things, the God who made you, love you enough to die for you, to take your place, to have nails hammered into my hands for you. Please listen to me and choose life. I am waiting and watching. Come home. That is who God is. In 2 Peter uh, 3, verses 8 to 9, says this, this is talking about that day of judgment. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Some understand slowness. 
Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Our Father, we praise you and thank you that this is the God that you are. We praise you that you are the God of the cross. That in response to this world and humanity and all our sin, all our sins committed against you, all our brokenness, your response was the cross. Was to come, to step into this world as a man and to die, taking on the sin of the world and the guilt of the world and the punishment that the world deserves. Taking it all on yourself, experiencing it and paying the price so that this world can be rescued. God, we praise you that that is who you are. God of grace. Lord, you are a God that we can trust and trust ourselves. And please help us. Help us to believe in your love for us. Help us to believe that you know us individually and you love us individually more than we can comprehend. That we are more precious to you than we can understand and we can get our heads around. Lord, help us to receive that and believe that. May that take root in us. We plant that seed inside us, a real belief in that, and may that grow more and more until it defines us. And Lord, please fill us with, with your love so that we can love other people. God, make us more and more other-centered. Make us more and more like you, our Father. Turn us into people who love in the way that you do, who love all people, regardless of who they are or what they've done. And Lord, we praise you for who you are. Thank you. Please continue by your Spirit to work this in our hearts. Thank you that you can do more than we ask or imagine. We praise you, Lord. Amen.